Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Matthew Jensen. Matthew is a project director at Fraser Line Architectural and Design Services, a firm providing multi-channel project services for the residential, hospitality, commercial and cruise ship industry sectors. Uh, Matthew, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure having you. So, Matthew, um, this podcast, of course, is all about leadership, effective leadership at that. And that's really coming under the test, especially at the moment with the whole COVID-19 outbreak. Um, Tell me, how has it been for yourselves as a firm over the last few weeks? Um, It's certainly been challenging. um, But obviously, I think as much as it can be overseen as negative, I think we have to look at the opportunities that, um, you know, the current market circumstances sort of deliver really and I think you know we've, we've sort of looked at it from a proactive approach rather than um, you know looking at the business as uh, you know a, a, a loss of work and revenue it's more about what, what can we do as a business to actually address better opportunities and, and what is our what is our offering and, and what what can we build upon what other added value services can we give to our customers so actually it's been quite a good opportunity to reflect um, of the, the cruise industry is um, quite a big piece of, of, of our market sector um, and we've actually reached out to quite a lot of our customers, um, heads of designs of um, many different large cruise operators and actually they've responded quite proactively as well saying that you know this is a really good time to actually reflect and see what we can do better as a business to, our, to offer to our customers. So uh, actually it's, it's, um, it's been quite a, a really um, good time to actually just reflect rather than actually um, panic rather than anything. Yes, for sure. And you mentioned that word proactivity there quite often. Would you say that proactivity um, in terms of business leaders is the way to go during this outbreak um, rather than being reactive to what's going on? Oh, definitely. I think I think that is a, is a crucial um, fundamental attribute to being a, a leader. I, I think, if you, you know, um, obviously, you know, it, it, it's known that um, many different leadership or management styles, it's very easy to become reactive, um, especially at sort of a, a moment of panic or a moment of, of change. Um, but I think, you know, and I've learned this the hard way, I think, from being in business is, is it's very easy to become reactive. But as you learn to go on and you, you build um, skills in, in terms of strategy and, and different ways in, in which you think, um, you know, proactivity is definitely, is definitely the winner for me. I think, I think it's, it's, it just makes all the difference when it comes to um, you know, holistically looking at, at what um, the situation is, the challenge, and, and, and you know, it's like everything. It, it, there is a, a, you know, there's a, a way of dealing with something that, that has a positive outcome. It's just the mindset, unfortunately, that is, is, is the thing to overcome. Absolutely. And uh, having that proactive mindset, but also being willing to learn sort of on your feet is a really important element of being a leader as well, isn't it? Because leaders may have an innate attitude and innate hunger and innate self-motivation, but the skills of being a leader, that sort of aptitude with strategy, those are things that fundamentally you do have to learn in a leadership role, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. To me, you know, you can certainly um, learn academically this, but I've I've learned the best way, which is being um, you know, in, in the in the live situation. And, and for me, I've learned the hard way and I've made many mistakes. Um, that's the thing. I've made many mistakes. And the good thing is I've learned from those mistakes. And, you know, that to me builds you as a better leader. That that would be any advice I'd give to someone would be to say, actually, you know, you have to sort of be in the shoes 
and then um, you know you, you kind of you shape around that that mould you to, to to be that that sort of potential um, you know sort of figurehead really for for anyone. Um, so yeah, that that's definitely a, a, a very critical point. Yeah. And um, did you always imagine yourself, uh, Matthew, that you'd end up in a leadership position earlier on in your career? Well, to be honest with you, I've always wanted to be um, in, a, in a leadership position. Um, it, it's quite funny, actually, because from sort of the architectural sort of career I've been in, I mean, I've always sort of been very uh, frustrated in a role that is, um, you know, more of a kind of technical role or something that's very kind of binary processing. And don't get me wrong, some people are very happy to do that. They, they, that's, that's what they, but I've always been quite frustrated in, in my career where I've always thought, you know, I just want to be, um, you know, adding value to the company. I want to be sort of, you know, really progressing, really, really kind of, you know, giving something back. Um, and, and that has been kind of the way that I've probably navigated to be quite an entrepreneurial, um, sort of in, in the way that I've founded Frasierline and um, also another business. And, it, you know, it, it just makes, I just feel a lot more fulfilled in my life now that I've actually taken the responsibility. Um, and, you know, it, it just become every day, it's just, you just learn something different every day. And I think that is the, the fulfillment you get out of a leadership role. Um, you learn so much about business. And I think that is so important for anyone that, that is looking to, either start up a company or, or move into a leadership role, you know, the, the learning the learning curve of, of business is so important. Um, and just the basics, really, it, you know, I, I absolutely, to be honest with you, being in a, in a profession, working in a massive office, I just didn't understand the business side of things. I didn't have a, an understanding of how the business worked. And I think making the move into, number one, a leadership role, and number two, um, a startup business, it just, it really did um, give me the, the other side of the coin, really. Absolutely. And um, you talk quite a bit there about your own uh, leadership style as well, Matthew, how you've developed into quite sort of an entrepreneurial figure, um, as it were. Mm. Um, what would you say the influences have been on that leadership style as, as that has developed? Yeah, that's, um, that's a, a very good question, actually. I'd say innovation is a big one. Um, I've always been, you know, really influenced by innovation. I think in, in for what I do, um, innovation is quite a big Force actually, um, and the world we're living in today, we've got digital tech. Um, we've got so many changes happening now with with the digital world, and also, um, you know, a bit like with the COVID situation, um, things things do change. Um, and I think that has given me a definite sort of entrepreneurial, um, sort of if you like, I guess a bias. Really, I, I think you know, looking at looking at how you can solve a problem, looking at an opportunity and to potentially take that opportunity route to market um, and, you know, to build a business out of it, to me, is, is, a, is just, a, 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 you know, a really appetizing um, way of life. I think that that is, is it just, it's so rewarding. It, it's a sense of achievement. And also you're doing something, you're, you're changing the world. And, it, it, you know, it's, I, I always think about what Guy Kawasaki said, fantastic speaker, and, you know, he, he did say about if you're thinking about starting a business just to make pure money, um, then you're probably not going to succeed. But if you're thinking about innovation to change and solve a problem, the money will come. And, you know, the, the business then, you, you know, you are on the right page to essentially become an innovator and to disrupt something that, that, you know, could make a big change in the world. So I've always, always taken that to heart. And I think, you know, I, I always sort of um, keep, keep that on my side. 
Mm, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned uh, Kawasaki there as um, a good example. Um, what do you think that he would actually say if he were to walk into the office at Fraser Line, presuming everybody were to be there, of course, and um, address the other uh, staff at the office? What do you think he might tell them? Um, <laughs> that's a very interesting question. I think um, I think he would probably, um, uh, yeah, he, he would probably look at the way that we do things and um, and probably ask the question of why we're slightly different to a conventional company. I think as in our business um, sort of market, I mean, you know, Fraser Line isn't really a, a typical architectural company as much as it is architectural. It, it is extremely niche in what it does. It, it is an innovation company. We work with a lot of digital technologies. We work with building information modeling systems. We've constantly got a foot in um, with the way that we connect our systems with, um, you know, the way that we deliver system design for, for the um, construction industry as well as obviously the shipbuilding industry. And I think that is something that, again, would probably come from the mantra of Guy Kawasaki in a way that we are looking to innovate. And I think I think the saying is something like um, that a thousand flowers blossom or something he, he comes up. But actually, it's a really, really quite crude but very interesting mm. Um, term that, that actually would would sort of allow us to, to sort of probably demonstrate what we're about. He also mentions about not having a mission statement for a business, and that's kind of the, the kind of typical golf clubhouse talk that that you know old businesses or old style businesses would have had. And again, we don't have a, business, a mission statement because it's changing all the time. You know, we're looking at one day changing the way that we um, use BIM for a cruise ship, which is a, a, a building information modeling system. And that actually is, is a great tool and it adds value to our customers because they're actually able to see the data in a different way than what we would do if we were just a typical architectural company. So I would say he'd probably look at us as a very different sort of architectural company. I, I, I've always said I'd, I wouldn't want to just be a normal architectural company. I think we, we're more than that. We, we're looking at innovation and we're looking at how we can deliver um, better design, but through the systems, add value. And we're, you know, we're very business-minded as a company as well. We're, we're very commercially-minded. We want to make sure that whatever we deliver, um, the customer gets good value back. We, we get good value back, and and obviously, you know, we we um we we you know we're we're really kind of delivering what we say we do. For sure, and it's really interesting um, as well, uh, just looking at that situation hypothetically and thinking about what such a figure of influence uh, might say in um, especially a scenario such as this. Um, I'm conscious, Matthew, of uh, running out of time, but before we do uh, go about wrapping things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself or Fraser Line and what you really hope to achieve in that time, especially beyond the COVID-19 outbreak as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's a very it's a very timely question. Um, we are looking at the moment. We've got a sister company called Paramount Limited, which is an affiliate of Fraser Line, um, and we are looking at Internet of Things technologies um, for the cruise line industry. So that's things like capacity movement um, monitoring, asset monitoring, um, and also um, looking at different ways in which we can also again I mentioned about the BIM systems for cruise liners to allow facilities managers to actually look after their asset and manage that asset a lot better. Um, we're actually looking at that. This is a great opportunity to look at that. It's something that the industry really needs. Um, and we're going to be tethering the two businesses together to essentially look at how we can essentially deliver a, a foolproof system for, for our customers that, that, you know, it's not just a delight, a delivering design, but delivering a, 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 a future for the whole longevity of the asset. So that's making sure that, our customers and our clients and our operators know exactly 
where to come when they want information about when they want to change something or when they need to improve efficiency or when they want to add further value. So we've got extremely, so many things going on at the moment. It's very exciting. We're, we're all, um, the three of us at Paramount are, are very keen to, to move things forward and, and show the world that hopefully we can make a, make a change. Absolutely. Even in these times of uncertainty, there's a lot of excitement and a great deal to uh, look forward to. And um, I would actually love to have you back on the programme in a few months' time, Matthew, just to look at that retrospectively and really see how um, those hopes have been uh, borne out um, once uh, we get through the next uh, few months. Um, But for now, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the programme, most insightful. And thanks so much um, for taking the time to come on today and share this um, for the benefit of the listeners. No, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, Matthew. Um, We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, m- my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname? Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your 
career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly 
It was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold in on. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, 
being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many, um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you, mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in twenty fifteen, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach. Was was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, Okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become 
avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death, there's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, 
Uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re uh, wearing red. So what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.